Hello, and welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast. The goal of this podcast is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their communities. The host of the Organizing for Change podcast is the coalition coordinator for Avon, Massachusetts, Amanda Decker. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast, episode 26, where our goal is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. I recently sat down with Jason Anderson, who is a communications expert and works with the Montana Institute. Jason is a master storyteller. He's an excellent workshop presenter and just an all-around great guy. In this episode, we talked about the reason why we do this work. We talked about why your why matters. And we also talked about changing our approach in communication to create change in your community. This is one of my all-time favorite episodes, and I think it will be yours too. As always, if you find this episode helpful, would you please help us get the word out by sharing it with a friend or colleague? And please leave a review. That is the absolute best way to make sure other folks find out about this podcast. If you haven't left a review before, just take two seconds, pause this episode, leave a quick review. We'll still be here when you get back, but that would mean so much to us and it would help us continue doing these great episodes so that you can continue to do the great work you do in your community. And without further ado, welcome to episode 26. Well, Jason, welcome to the Organizing for Change podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm fired up to have the conversation. Yeah, so why don't you tell everyone uh, who's never met you before just a little bit about yourself and maybe some of the work that you do and how we got connected, and then we'll jump right into some of the incredible things I learned from listening to you. Oh, wow. Well, thanks. So, yeah, my name is Jason Anderson, and I am currently the director of uh, a county probation department in northern Minnesota. So my background is primarily in corrections. I've spent almost 20 years in probation and parole. Um, and in that experience, had the opportunity to to get pretty well invested in, in, in some communication strategies, um, motivational interviewing in particular. So so I became a trainer and then later even equipped to train trainers in, in that communication style. And so, so that, that was part of my, um, part of my career as, as doing probation and parole work. And then about five or six years ago, I had the opportunity, the opportunity to start getting involved in some, some community prevention efforts, um, specifically within a few school districts in my county. Uh, they started implementing some programs to target uh, to reduce and delay underage drinking. And, and so I, I became involved in those both as a probation director guy and as a parent. I have teenage boys. And um, not long into my exposure to that work, I, I saw some commonalities in, in, um, in the need for effective communication. So commonalities between the, my probation work and prevention work. And, and so started working with my local coalitions and even started working with um, Jeff Linkenbach of the Montana Institute, uh, who's just a rock star guru when it comes to prevention stuff, in, in developing some specific curricula around 
what are the more effective strategies to communicate with individuals, to communicate with communities about prevention work? And, uh, and so that's where that, it was through Jeff and through the Montana Institute that ultimately got me connected to the Stoughton community to, uh, to be invited out and, and, uh, and to do some work with, with, with those fine, fine folks about, uh, about this issue. That's fantastic. And for those of you who don't know, Stoughton is actually our neighboring town. So I was really privileged to get to meet you. One of the things that really stood out to me uh, when I got to hear you speak is you tell a story about your why and why it matters. Um, If you would like to tell that story uh, to our listeners, because I'd love to talk a little bit about the why and why it matters. Yeah. So one of the things that that, that just foundational to this work, to the to, to effective prevention work, or maybe even any work, is to start off with being centered on your why. Like, why do you do it? What's the spirit of the work? Um, and and you know those those are some questions that you know we we might think about early in our careers, or even when we're considering a career. And yet, once we kind of get rolling, it can become an afterthought. Um, and and so one of the things we talked about uh, a few weeks ago in our in our in our time together was the need to to rekindle that to to, to get back connected to what your what is your why 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 did you why did you start doing any of this stuff why did you want to be a a public health nurse or why did you want to be a teacher or why did you want to do whatever you did um, why do you why do you get involved in why are you involved in community prevention efforts. Um, and be really super intentional about mining that and, and extracting that for yourself. But that's only part of the story because being aware of it is one thing, but mm-hmm. how do you share that? How do you, how do you think about that in a way that you can communicate that to others? Because, um, man, when people know why you're doing what you're doing, there, some walls can come down, some, you know, some resistance or some, some criticisms or some cynicisms can come down. Um, and so that that's just foundational. Now you you said you wanted me to to speak to a story that I may have yeah. told. I got a full confession here. I tell a lot of stories. Yeah, right? no, it was about a call center and uh, a call center and oh, um, yeah. If you just want, because I'd tell it so badly. <laughs> oh, I love this story. So so a researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, um, Adams was his name, was was wondering. Okay, so what, people's why probably matters, right? I'm guessing it matters that people have a why or what their why is about probably matters. But he's a researcher, so he, he got all clinical about it and thought, I bet you I could design a study that, that might demonstrate the impact of people's why. So what he did is he took advantage of the fact that at University of Pennsylvania, they have a, a scholarship program for that, a scholarship program that's funded by alumni. So it's pretty straightforward. What they do is they take undergraduate students and um, have them make cold calls to graduates of the University of Pennsylvania and solicit donations. And then with the monies donated, there's some mechanism to screen applicants. And then, you know, you know how scholarships work on the other side of that. Um, but what he did is he went into that program and he took the the, the the students who had not volunteered because they're going to get paid. They get paid a little something. It's like a work study um, that, that are going to do these cold calls. And he randomly assigned them into three different groups. So in, in one group, in group A, 
he spent 10, 15 minutes with them before they're going to start doing the work, before they start making the phone calls. Group A, he gives them 10 or 15 minutes of, hey, here's what's in it for you to do this. So he's reinforcing their why. So for you, you're going to make a couple bucks. You know, you're, going to, you're making more than minimum wage. It's a pretty flexible, pretty good gig. Um, if you're interested in going into business or sales or marketing, whoa, what great experience making cold calls and everything. This is, this is a resume builder. So he didn't go over the top, but he spent 10, 15 minutes reinforcing that why, right? Okay, so that's group A, randomly assigned. Group B, randomly assigned. He spent 10, 15 minutes telling some case stories, some studies, some, 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 some scenarios of students who had the opportunity to come to University of Pennsylvania because of this scholarship fund. So he's reinforcing another kind of a why. Like, here's what's not in it for you, but here's who could be affected by your work. 10, 15 minutes randomly assigned. That's group B. Group C, control group. They didn't get any reinforcement of why. They're just taught how to run the call center, how to record the credit card number, bada bing, bada boom, right? No big deal. So what's interesting is not only did he discover a difference between the three control groups, or the three groups, group A, reinforce what's in it for you, group B, reinforce what's in it for others, group C, nothing. Group B more than doubled the intake from A and C combined. It more than doubled the amount of revenue. So think about that. So, so not only does that demonstrate well, the, the, what, what Adam's deduced from it and what I deduce from it isn't just that, yeah, having a why matters, but if your why is connected to something bigger than you, mm-hmm. if your why is about someone and someone else, double the income. I mean, that's, that's startling to me. Um, yeah. yeah, isn't it's, that cool? It's, it's amazing. So I wanted to try this out. So literally, like within a couple of days, I met with a group of volunteers and I told your story, this story, the best I could. I recounted it. Yeah. And then I... Because I usually tell volunteers, like, this is all the great things you'll get from volunteering with us. Um, but yeah. instead, I changed it and told them about the life of an individual who was really changed by what we did. And um, it was amazing. I There were tears in people's eyes. And I still hear people, uh, you know, two weeks out, you know, coming up and saying, wow, I, I can't believe we get to be a part of this. And, um, oh, that it's, is cool. Yeah, it's fascinating. It really did make a difference. And it's something really practical, I think, us as coalition leaders. We, we sometimes, you know, try to encourage people to help us based on what's in it for them. And uh, yeah. I think it's more impactful when we talk about the, the change it's made in the lives of our people in our community. Yeah. Wow. And I tell you what, I am going to bottle that story up and, 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 and use it elsewhere. I love the fact that you took... Uh, an aha moment for yourself and then like, okay, how can I apply this? And not just, Oh, I learned something and that was, and get all introspective. And that's, I mean, that's all great, but that's not why we go to, I hope that's not why we go to trainings. Right. right? You know? So yeah, good for you. Good for, that's really cool. (laughs) Yeah. Something else that really uh, stuck out to me too, um, was just thinking about, um, putting yourself in, the other person's shoes because in this work we go out and we talk 
to a lot of people. Uh, and we have some uncomfortable conversations because we're looking to make change in our community. And obviously, if um, everyone saw eye to eye with us, they would already be doing the things that we hope. Um, <laughs> right. So sitting down and um, I think oftentimes we come in and we just think about what we want. We don't really sit down and try to put ourselves in the other person's shoes. And you told us story. Um, you were talking about how you were in a training um, to, uh, as a probation officer, you have to work with um, sex offenders. If you want to tell a little bit of that story, because I think that perfectly described to me uh, the difference between uh, empathy and sympathy. Yeah. So what, yeah, what a powerful concept to, to think about is that, that, that empathetic uh, perspective and that empathetic lens to, 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 to be able to not put yourself in their shoes mm-hmm. per se, but just to really appreciate and understand that they are in a different perspective. They are in a different position. Yeah. They, it is different from their angle. So, so yeah, the story I, I would have related is early on in my probation parole officer career, you know, very early on, like when I was newly hired, I had to go through some basic sex offender supervision strategy training, you know, so think of a very stoic, long two day training of report writing and, Blah blah blah. So there was a lot of that, and and so I'm I'm working my way through this training, and we came back from a break, and there's I don't know 20 or 30 people in the room, and we're seated in the horseshoe format, so the tables are arranged, so you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with people all the way around the room, and and um, the instructor came back from the break. She says, okay, so now for this next thing we're going to do, we're going to do an activity, and this will be a pairs activity, so you'll be paired off, and then one two, you know, like. You'll just have one other. And as best we're able, she says, if we can have male-female pairs, that would be great. And we may not be able to fully accomplish that with the makeup of our room. But as best we're able, we're going to have male-female pairs. And so you're going you're gonna, to you'll be with your partner there. And you'll each have about five minutes to speak. Um, and what you're going to do is you're going to share with your partner your most recent sexual encounter. And by share with them, I mean... We, you, I'm going to ask you that you're going to share with them like who did what, how things started, what happened in the middle of that, how it ended. There's really no detail that is too finite here. This is you're really going to just let them know everything that happened. And and so she, and then after you've shared, then your partner will then reciprocate and they're going to tell you theirs. See, so so what questions do you have about what we're going to do? So go ahead, I'll tell you when to switch. So let's go ahead and get. And she says, No, of course we're not going to do that. Of course, we're not going to do that. And now the air had been sucked out of the room, right? I mean, everyone had turned, you know, either beet red or, or flush mm-hmm. white or pale white, right? She says, now think about this for just one second. In in your role as a probation and as a parole officer, so working with sex offender clients, one of the tasks that you will have to do regularly is talk to them about what they did. And and you're going to you're going to expect them to share with you details of what they did, because if they don't and it will say if and and if they don't fully disclose what they did, you interpret that a certain way. Now, I want you to think back just five seconds, you know, 20 seconds ago, I almost asked you to share with somebody else something that you did that would have been consensual, that would have been legal, pro-social, all of these things. And you almost turned inside out at the thought of having to do that. What, what you are, what you are, when you're working with one of your clients, you're in a position of authority over them. They don't know you very well. Um, and, and you're asking them to share with you something that was 
immoral, uh, not pro-social, not legal, maybe not consensual, all of these things. And yet, if they don't fully disclose every detail, they're, they're minimizing, they're in denial, they're making light of it. You know, so she says, oh, please, please, please don't hear me tell you. I'm not telling you to feel sorry for anyone. This isn't sympathy. Have a little empathy about how difficult it might be to, to have that conversation. And, oh, boy, did that, that has really stuck with me. Like, yeah, there's another side to everything. There's, yeah, yeah. I think that really helped, too, because I started thinking about some of the folks that don't see things the same way that we do. And um, I think it helps in, you know, assuming uh, about somebody. You know, we place a lot of assumptions on why. Or, and I, I found it interesting just to kind of think about this topic of empathy and come at it from a whole different swing uh, when I'm out talking to members of the community who don't really see eye to eye on what we're doing. Right. And well, yeah, like my example might sound pretty extreme, you're like, okay, Jason, that's all fine and wonderful. What does that really have to do with prevention? Mm-hmm. Well, if, if, if from my perspective, from my vantage point, the thought of using substances when you're, when you're underage or, or, you know, making some of those risky choices seems so obviously risky and dangerous, and why would you put yourself in those scenarios? But from somebody else's perspective, I mean, they might be like, yeah, but from where I stand, that's a normal thing in my in my home or in my circle of friends. And you want to, you know, talk like it's just this easy thing to do, but I, you don't stand where I stand. And, and it just helps me to, you know, I'm just, I have to be aware of that other side and, and to, 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 to honor that. And one of the other really powerful, powerful things about, about this, this notion of empathy is what can happen when we express it. So Mm -hmm. Well, it can be very powerful and helpful for me to be to tune into it, to see that, oh, she sees it differently than I do. But what can happen when I acknowledge that other perspective? So I'm you know, I say something like, you know, like, Wow, you're really you're you're really feeling overwhelmed about this or you're really from where you stand it doesn't it doesn't seem that simple. Yeah. And and by just honoring that, now, okay, here's a guy, he kinda gets me a little bit. Right? right, right. Powerful stuff. Powerful stuff, and it doesn't cost you nothing. Right? right it doesn't cost yeah. you. Nothing. That, that's <laughs> another thing that I've been thinking about too. Is just I think too often we, you know, because we've had training in the prevention field and we do know a little bit, you know, about this subject, we sometimes come across in the community as the expert. We know what to do we have our logic model and we have our data and we're going to let the community know what they need to do in order to fix these issues and i loved uh, just talking about how when you come across as the practitioner the expert the know-it-all just what that does to the person that you're talking to um maybe you can just elaborate on that a little bit and how there's a better way to kind of approach it to get people to open up and talk yeah, that it, that's another really key thing that if I if I engage in a conversation and I approach that conversation as as the expert, as the as the guy who knows more and I'm the one who's got the solutions, whether it's a conversation I'm having with a friend about, 
you know, they're smoking or wanting to stop drinking coffee. But if I have all of the answers versus if I'm open to, you know, just invoking from evoking from them, hey, what makes this important to you? And what might be something you could do? And, and if I, depending on my attitude of approach and the way I come at that, that person can either, A, become very defensive and shut down and argumentative and withdrawn, or they can be engaged and they can have their own solutions to the idea and we can have a really genuine conversation about things. And while it's going too far to say that I get to manipulate and control who I talk to, (laughs) that's not entirely true. Um, Yet, my goodness, can we influence the degree to which the person I'm talking to is hostile, defensive, withdrawn, shut down, or the degree to which they are engaged and being part of their solution and thoughtful and present. Um, And we can do that just by the way I'm, just the way I'm talking at you or talking with you or being with you versus talking at you and being the expert and, and having this, this expert kind of a role or demeanor. Um, Yeah. Because Yeah, and some of our work, prevention work, can raise some hackles. People can get defensive and people can be skeptical. And and we can just honor that. And some people, you know, let's be honest, some people are just going to be that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet when I encounter that, when we encounter that, our response to it, our response to them can reinforce the way they're being or it can calm them down a little bit. And, and that doesn't mean... That can come off as being just wishy-washy, but no, it doesn't mean that that we're we're spineless. But if I if I if I meet resistance and hostility with resistance and hostility, mm-hmm. well, then that's all we're going to get. We're just going to feed that, right? You know, that's that's, that's not productive. So, um, yeah, yeah, I was thinking along the lines too. Um, just this even applies to you know parenting. And just, I have a 10-year-old, and just some of these things I've been thinking about. Um, the story that you told about your son and his um, his, his <laughs> nose picking, it was so cute, but it really helped illustrate, if you want to just recap that story a little yeah. bit. Uh, but that really helped me understand, you know, it's a different person that you talk to based on the right. way that you talk. Right, and, uh, and full disclosure, after coming back from, from the Boston area, I find my that son, and I will tell the story. That son is now fifteen, and um, <laughs> and I said, I said, you know what, Jake? I said, Jake, I got to tell you, man, you you make an appearance in a lot of my trainings. <laughs> and he, he kind of cocks his head. He's like, oh no, what's this about? I said, well, I tell a story about a conversation we had once, and and I'll tell you. I said, I'll tell you this story and remind you of it. But I wonder if you remember it. If you remember that conversation, so I'll circle back to the end of that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about that after the story. So the story goes like this. When, when my younger son was, I don't know, five, six years old, he was still in that stage as a young, a young boy who was just the chronic nose picker. He's the guy that if you looked at him two out of three times, if you turned your head and found him in the room, he's buried to the third knuckle, right? He was just that guy, right? And, and so my lovely wife and I adopted the most tried and true parenting technique known to man. Um, and we stuck with it for quite a while. And that parenting technique was what? We shamed him. We belittled him. We got after him. You know, we said things like, Jacob, stop that. That's disgusting. Don't you, you're, you're, you're six years old. You should know better. You're going to get teased. You know, you're in, the, you're in the first grade. You should know. And how effective were those strategies? They, they weren't. They weren't effective at all. And so 
one day I came home from one of these trainings, one of these workshop things that I do and talking about how we talk to people. And I came home and I sat back on the couch and I started channel surfing and I, my younger son crawled up beside me to sit down and I look over at the corner of my eye and of course he's mining for gold again. Right. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try this differently. I'm going to try this conversation differently. And I said, I said, Jacob, um, and I kind of gestured to his, and he pulls his hand away from his face. I said, can we, can we talk about that? I mean, would it be all right if we had a conversation about that? Which right away is quite a bit of a different way to talk to him about it. But he looks at me a little uncomfortable, but says, yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know what else he could have said, but yeah. And I said, well, here's the thing, bud. I said, you've probably picked up on the fact that that's a pretty big deal to your mom and I. Like, because we get after you when you do it and we talk to you. About so we, I'm just wondering, first of all, is it a big deal to you? that you stop doing that. And, and he, and he's still just looking at me like I'm from outer space. Like he's, he, you know, freaking out that I'm talking to him. But I said, here's, let me ask it to you like this. How important to you is it? How important to you is it that you stop doing that? And I'll ask it this way, Jacob. I said, if we'll put it on a scale, like a scale of zero to 10, if zero is, it's the least important thing ever. Or 10, it's the most important thing in your life is that you stop doing that. How important to you is it that you stop? And he gets a little thoughtful and he kind of furrows his little six-year-old brow and he says, oh, it's probably like an eight or a nine. Oh, wow, Jacob, that's pretty high. That's pretty important, right? I said, no, another question. The same scale, zero to 10. How confident are you, buddy? How confident are you that you're going to stop doing that? Zero means you don't think you'll ever stop. You'll do this forever, your whole life. Ten, you'll never do it again. You know for a fact you'll never, ever do it again. How confident are you? And he says, you know, five or a six. I said, okay. So, so your importance is pretty high. You said importance is like eight or nine. Why is it so important? And he says things like, because I should know, but I, you know, I'm like six years old. I don't want to get teased in school. It's kind of disgusting. So now he is telling me why it's important, which is profoundly different than me just hitting over the head with it again and again. Yeah. And I said, so now, and then at confidence, you said you're like a five or a six. Tell me why so high. Tell me why it's a five or a six and not like a three or a four. Mm-hmm. And now he, starts, now he starts sounding like a smoker because he says, <laughs> right. he says, because I've quit before. <laughs> because I've quit before. Now, it was really hard to keep my face straight at that point, but I think I did. And I said, you quit before. Tell me about that, Jacob. What did that look? What? You quit before? Oh, yeah. He says, you know, Dad, I think I went a whole week without doing it. Now, that would have been news to me, but I, I, I yeah. stuck with it. He said, well, tell me about that, Jacob. What, would, what did that look like? What did you have to do? You know, and again, he sounds like a smoker. He says, mm-hmm. I had to keep my hands busy. I had to, you know, like at school, I just had to put a pencil in each hand or, or put my hands in my pocket or whatever. So, so we, we, had, we talked a little bit more about that. I said, all right, you know what? I, I, we can wrap this up. I, know, I don't want to, you know, you know, go too far on this with you tonight. But I said, one last question. I said, whenever your mom and I, whenever we see you doing it, we get after you. Like we point, Jacob, stop that. You know, hey, hey, you know, we, we get after you to some degree or another. And I want to know, does that help you or is that just shameful? Because I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to embarrass you here. I mean, 
if if it's not helpful, we won't do that. And he says, no, Daddy, I, I don't know I'm doing it. So I need you to point that out to me because I literally don't know when I'm doing it. So it's okay. You need to, you need to point it out to me. I said, okay, buddy. Well, if that changes, if it becomes something where it feels like I'm just picking on you, tell me and I'll stop that because I don't want to that, – that's not what this is about. And And so – now, I'd love to say that that was the last time ever he did that, because it, it certainly wasn't the last time he did that behavior. But it invited, well, number one, it was a pretty cool way to have a conversation about it. And it set a tone that it was safe for he and I to check in about it. Like later on, like in the weeks and the days later, I could say, hey, how are you doing with that, man? Instead of, Jacob, stop that. It's disgusting. Yeah. So how do we apply that little story to our communities and prevention? I think for me, telling just the community to just stop that, it's disgusting. With it, it's risky, it's awful, isn't effective. Right. <laughs> it raises defenses and it doesn't change behavior. But having a conversation with our community, how important is it to you? How confident, what can we do? What, what are the strengths of this community? What are, what are most kids doing? That's awesome because we know that what the norms are and that the norms that most kids make awesome choices. Yeah. And so, so engaging in conversations differently than just, let's just scare the crap out of them right. and let's just yell at them and shame them and should all over them. Let's tell them what they should or shouldn't do. Right. Um, let's have conversation about it. And you really can change who you're talking to. I mean, if you come at it with the whole, we're going to tell you what you should do. And you really do raise those defenses. It reminded me of a story that I heard about this uh, guy and his family. They all moved to a community. And on the way into the community, they saw an old man sitting on the side of the road. And he said, hey, we're moving from this town and we loved it. Can you tell me what uh, what we're going to find up ahead of us? And he said, um, oh, well, what kind of people were in the town that you were in before? And he said, they were amazing. They were just incredible people. And we loved living there it was an amazing place and we're so sad we have to leave and he said well guess what you're in luck because you're gonna find out the people in this town are amazing and you're they're just great neighbors and you're just gonna love it and the man happily went off and um a few hours later a woman came with her family and said she was moving and moving from a different city and she said Sir, I, we're moving to this new city. Can you tell me about what the people are going to be like here? And he said, well, tell me how the people were in your last city. She said they were terrible, horrible. The neighbors were awful. The community was terrible. It was just the worst place to live. And he said, I'm so sorry, ma'am. You're going to find the exact same in the city up ahead. Unfortunately, they're terrible and horrible, and you're going to hate it. Kind of the moral of the story is, you know, whatever you're looking for, you're going to find and exactly. I love, yeah, I love how you tie in just to look for the good in a community. Right, because the, the answers and the solutions are right there in it. They're yeah. just right in it. And in looking at, you know, in my local communities here in Minnesota, one of our school districts over the span of five years was able to reduce underage drinking by 50%. Wow. 50% reduction from 26% of kids were drinking in a typical month to 13% were drinking in wow. a typical month. And the beautiful thing about that is that wasn't, that wasn't accomplished because of some curricula, because of some program. The answers and the solutions were right there. 
They just had to tap into that and celebrate the good choices that kids were making. And by letting people know that most make good choices, and this is Jeff Lickenbach's work, the science of the positive norm stuff. I mean, that guy's just... that 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 by honoring and celebrating the good, it grows. It grows. That doesn't mean we just see life through rose-colored glasses, and we don't we don't also acknowledge the concern that's real and that exists, and we feel it, mm-hmm. and we're in with it. It's not like we're just Pollyannish about it. Right. But if but if all we do is admire problems mm-hmm. and celebrate how awful they are and how insurmountable they are to overcome, well, that's that's what we'll find. I love your story that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. That's what we got here too. That's what yeah. we got here too. Down. Yeah. Spot yeah. on. Well, Jason, I could talk to you for a whole nother hour, but our time is up. Um, and this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I definitely plan to include in our show notes some of the things that we talked about. But for people that want to connect with Jeff's work or things that you're doing, where could they find you? Where would be a good place to connect? Oh, boy. I would really encourage them to go. First step, probably would go to the Montana Institute's website. Um, the Montana Institute, just Google it. Uh, Jeff's work has got, he's got oodles and gobs of resources on there from from different uh, videos and vignettes and blog posts and scenarios and stuff. And he does a better job of articulating his approach than I could ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it, it's it's it, it just works. You know, it, the, the answers are right there in your, in your town and you got the people to do it. And it's really just getting folks, um, you know, the vehicle or the, 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 the format to, to tap into it. Um, it's not about bringing in the consultant and having someone talk smart. Yeah. It's about um, just shifting some perspectives and, yeah. and tapping into all the awesomeness that's there. So good. I will include those links on the show notes. Uh, and thank you again so much for being on the podcast. We really yeah. appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. You guys take care. For more information from today's podcast, check out our show notes. There you can find our contact information, social media, and website. Please get in touch with us if you have any comments or questions. And if you like today's podcast, please share it with your friends. Thanks for listening.